Thank you, Miss Robin, for your ministry to us today. Miss Heidi and uh, Caden, Eric, our little orchestra up there keeps getting bigger. I like it. Pretty soon it won't be a little orchestra anymore. It'll be an orchestra. Amen. <clears throat> a while back, which by the way, in preacher's lingo, a while back can be anywhere from three weeks to 25 years. Amen. If you hear a preacher say a while back, amen. But I know it wasn't that far back, but it was a little longer. Uh, Blondie and I, my wife and I, determined that the most oft word, uh, most oft used words in our house were going to be, I love you. That as we had our children, as they were growing up, particularly in those formative years, we were going to say, I love you, a lot. Now, I understand not every generation is that way, and, uh, but we just made it a priority. And um, I thought, you know, we had communicated that well. So a while back, I asked one of our children, I think it was Luke, somebody asked, uh, what, what are the, the three uh, words that, you know, your, your dad uses the most in the house? And forgive me, ladies and gentlemen, I was getting ready to polish my Father of the Year award. And I believe it was Luke who said, no, stop, and don't. <laughs> and I went, no ice cream for you, amen. And, uh, and <laughs> and it's, it is true, we do say no, stop, and don't a lot, especially when they're little. Amen? No, you can't play with the chainsaw. Uh, how about stop putting your hand near the stove? Don't play near the road. That's all no, stop, and don't. Amen? And why, why would us parents say such mean things to our children? After all, doesn't, doesn't society and don't, don't psychologists tell us that we can warp our children by denying them what they want? You know what I have to say to that? This. As a friend of mine, an old preacher friend of mine would say, you know what, if you believe that, you may be crippled too high for crutches which is a, a nice way of saying you may be short a few cells up here, amen? No, I, by the way, I'm glad my dad disciplined me. Right. I remember when, I, I distinctly remember a time where my dad had to really, really lay it on me, and I remember him saying, son, you know why I do this? Now, mind you, my dad was lost for, until the last day of his life. He said, son, you know why I do this? He said, I don't... I don't want to have to visit you in prison. Boy, if society could get a grasp of that, there'd be a lot less people up at Parnell. Really. And so we, we say no, stop, and don't. By the way, because there are real-life consequences to poor decisions. I think those of you that are on social media, a pastor friend of mine the other day had, had posted a picture, and I just loved it. I shared it. And it was a picture of a lion laying down. And behind him, Brother Biedenkopf, is a monkey with a stick like this. And it said, they say everything happens for a reason. And then at the bottom it said, and sometimes the reason is because you are stupid and make dumb decisions. Yeah. There, listen, 
I want my kids to understand there are real life consequences to poor choices. We don't live in a Nerf world. We don't live in a world where you just get a do-over. I want them to know, forgive me, that stupid hurts. And it does. You know, all throughout this blessed book that we hold in our hand, there are divine warnings. From, from Genesis to Revelation. Go with me if you would. We're going to look at a few this morning. We'll just walk through our Bibles a little bit. We'll only take right turns. So go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. The first interaction between God and the crown of His creation in Genesis chapter 2 culminates with a warning. If we could put it this way, ladies and gentlemen, it culminates with a don't. Don't. Read Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. It says in verse 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to dress it and to keep it. By the way, gardeners, imagine how easy it was with no weeds, no thorns, no nettles, no rain. Mist came up, watered everything. All you had to do was go out there and pick. Verse 16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man. He didn't suggest it. He commanded. Of every tree of the garden, thou mayest freely eat. But, and here comes the don't, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not. You know what that is? Don't. Don't. Eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof, here's the real life consequences, thou shalt surely die. Pastor, do you think those consequences still take place? Yeah, they're called cemeteries. Just drive by. The first warning in the Scriptures in the second chapter of the Bible. I'll go over a little further into Genesis. Genesis chapter 19. This is the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And look, if you would, beginning in verse number 12. These angels that were men, they look like men, they were angels. It says, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou any here beside, chapter 19, verse 12 of Genesis, Son-in-law, thy sons and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. Why? For we will destroy this place. The cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out, spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife, thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of this city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand, upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. They brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth, 
that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. So what was the warning here? Get out of Sodom. God's going to destroy it. Go with me a little further in your Old Testament to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 12. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 12. Look down at verses 14 and 15, please. Here we see a divine warning against rebellion, against disobedience. He says here in Verse 14 of chapter 12, he says, If ye will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both ye and also the King that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. Here's the warning. But. Isn't it amazing that many of the warnings in the Bible have that but? By the way, because God will say, if you'll do this, I'll bless you. But then he says, if you don't do this, but do what I told you not to. Well, he says there, but if ye will not obey the voice of the Lord and rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you as it was against your fathers. Now about you, that's something I don't want is to have God's hand against me. Because he's undefeated in battles. And I don't want to be on the wrong team. Well, we could keep going here. First uh, Chronicles chapter 16, verse 22, tells us to touch not the Lord's anointed. Remember that? That's why David didn't harm Saul. King David refused to uh, take out Saul when he had an opportunity. He said, look, that's, that's God's man. And uh, again, we, and again, I'm just kind of throwing these at you. Uh, Jesus used the phrase, take heed, several times. You know what he said? Watch out. Be careful. Take heed. Beware of covetousness. He used it all. Uh, how about John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, verse 7? He said, flee from the wrath to come. He said, you better watch out. Remember... Jesus warned us about the awfulness of hell. You know how bad hell is? Jesus said this, it would be better for you to take your own fingers in your eyeball and yank that thing out. Now think about how bad that would be. He tells another, another time, he said, it would be better for you to take a knife and cut off your own hand than to go into hell with all your faculties. Remember that story, I don't know if you remember it, years ago about that hiker who got stuck out there and he, he literally got pinned in a rock and he had, he had a pocket knife and he was literally starving and thirsting to death out there and he said, well, I'm either going to die out here or I'm going to have to cut my hand off. And he literally cut off his hand. His name was Aaron Ralston. Jesus said it would be better for you to do that than to go to hell. You know what he's warning us about? Don't go to hell, he's saying. Don't go to hell. He's not saying I want you to cut your hand off. I want you to pluck your eye out. He's saying I don't want you to go to hell. 
And I think about it, if you go back to the end of the Bible, we'll make our way back to Revelation. Right before Revelation, look at 2 Peter with me. These are just some divine warnings of Scripture. 2 Peter chapter number 2. He gives us some divine warnings. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, and, and we read about this there in Genesis 19, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow. Uh, we know that happened. That was the what. But the why is in the back half of the verse. Making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. You find that in the book of Jude and I'll not dwell long in Jude as I've dwelt in it for 50 Wednesday nights, amen. But uh, verse 7 of Jude is the sister verse to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. <clears throat> and it says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. God says to those of all ages who want to live ungodly, you better look back at Sodom. You better look back at what I did. I made an eternal example out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, we have a whole month that celebrates such ungodliness. God said, don't. Don't. And then I think about it, if you look at Jude verses. 18 and 19. He warns us, ladies and gentlemen, about the end day scoffers. Those people that mock you and I, that make fun of our Christianity, make fun of the fact that we believe this blessed old book, try to live our lives accordingly. We're going to talk about that tonight. I, I joke with Pastor Alex. I said, you should have advertised Christmas in July tonight. You folks know me about Christmas music, right? You know, like I... I we, we don't even start until the Thanksgiving meal is over and the napkins are on the table. Then it's till January 1st. But the title of my message tonight is, O Come, Let Us Adore Him, from O Come, All Ye Faithful. Well, it's about worship, worshiping the Lord. And worship is an action. It's a verb. Here it tells us there in Jude 18 and 19, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lust. These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit. They're going to be end day scoffers. And by the way, there are so many more divine warnings in the Bible. We could go on for the rest of the time that we have. In Revelation chapter 22, if you go back there with me, Just bringing you up to date if you're in Revelation 22. After the catching away of the church, and I believe that takes place in Revelation 4, verse 1. This old world will endure seven years of hell on earth. It's called the tribulation. It's broken into two parts. You have the first half, which is three and a half years, 1260 days. And that first half is the tribulation, but the second half is called the great tribulation. Where the Antichrist, Satan's Superman, that, that one who's going to come and he's going to make peace, he's going to bring a false peace to the earth. But then at the 
midway point of that tribulation, he's going to stand in that temple and he's going to, to have the abomination of desolation. You say, what's that? He is going to declare to the world that he is God, demand worship or else. And those that are left behind will have the choice to either take the mark and worship him or lose their life. And by the way, if you know anything about that awful mark, you say, Pastor, what's the mark of the beast? What's it? I don't know, and neither does anybody else. But I know this. If you take it, you're doomed. Absolutely doomed during the tribulation. That'll happen. But praise God, at the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus is going to return on a white horse. And the armies which were in heaven followed him. I believe that's the angels and us. I hate horses, but I'll like it that day. Amen. Hallelujah. I'll ride one then, and I won't even fall off. And by the way, Jesus isn't coming to shake hands. He's offered his hand. He, he's offered his hands in friendship. He's offered his hands as Savior. Now he's returning as judge and conquering king over his enemies. And that's chapter 19. Chapter 20. Satan will be bound a thousand years in the bottomless pit. And it will be what's called the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus Christ literally ruling and reigning on earth on David's throne. He'll rule with a rod of iron, by the way. And he will reign with him. But then at the end of those thousand years, one last time, Satan is loosed. And it's amazing to me, but during that thousand years, children will be born. Even with Jesus Christ ruling and reigning on earth, there will be lost people who follow Satan in a final rebellion, and Jesus Christ quelches it just like that. And then finally he takes Satan, and, and, and I don't know the process again, neither does the Bible doesn't say, but I wonder if Jesus himself will take Satan by the ear. Wouldn't that be something? He doesn't even have to. He can just say go, and he would have to obey. And he's going to cast him finally into the lake of fire. And we'll be done with him. And then in Revelation chapter 21, God reveals the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Oh, remember that day, fellas, when you saw her at the back of the auditorium? Your bride? My heart still pitter-patters a little bit when I think about it. My goodness. Imagine what that's going to be when we see heaven descending. There it is for us. And then in chapter 21, verse 3, God, the Bible says God will dwell with the redeemed. He's going to dwell with us and be our God and we'll be His people. And then He'll wipe away all tears. Why is he going to wipe, then wipe away all tears? Because right before that is the great white throne judgment when all the lost people are judged. 
when all those who refuse Jesus Christ as their Savior and have to pay for their sins will be judged. Then God's going to wipe away our tears. He'll make all things new, the Bible says. What a day that's going to be. Then you bring us to chapter 22, and we see, first of all, in verses 1 through 5, we see the scenery. First of all, we'll see his face, we'll have his light. But what's some of the scenery that we see in verses 1 through 5? Well, we see the Crystal River in verse 1. We see the Tree of Life in verse 2. And I know we'll think, well, you know, there's not going to be any time in heaven. It's an interesting verse if you look at verse number 2 because it tells us that the Tree of Life will bear 12 manners of fruit and it'll change every month. Now, there's no need for time. We're not going to get old, glory to God. But we'll know when a new month is because there'll be a different fruit on there. See the Tree of Life. We see the Crystal River. Hey, verse 3, you know what, you know what we won't see? The curse. Say, what's the curse? Brother Ewald, the curse is when I'm mowing and I get hit with a, with a briar as I'm on the edge. And I get scratched because there's a pricker there on my wild raspberry bushes, which I, I'm willing to take the prickers, amen? Those raspberries are awesome. But you know, they're not going to be any curse anymore. The, the lion will lay down with the lamb the Bible says. There won't be any more curse. The roses will bloom without thorns. Hallelujah. So the scenery that's there, there's the crystal river, the tree of life, no more curse. Look at verse 4. Verse 5, rather. Of course, verse 4, of course, they shall see His face. We'll see Him. We'll see Him. I don't know about you, and again, I don't know how all this is going to work, I, I think about just Brother Lolly just taking my, fa- my fingers and just touching his face. If he, I don't know if he'll let us do that or not. But I know this, I'll see him face to face. And I, forgive me, I'm going to be like Thomas. I want to see your hands. Can I see what I did to you? Can I see that? And what does verse 5 tell us? You know what else we're not going to see? Night. We're not going to see night. There's no night there. Why? Because the sun of righteousness shines for eternity. The scenery. Well, I can't dwell long here. Verses 6 through 16 on the, the sayings. You ought to mark in your Bible, if you mark your Bible, that word sayings is in this passage over and over and over And he said unto me, these sayings are true and faithful. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of this book. Verse 9. And of them which keep the sayings of the book. Verse 10. And he saith unto me, seal not the sayings of this book. And then he gives us some sayings there. He says, hey, he that's unjust... Let him be unjust still. He doesn't have to be unjust. I'll justify anybody who calls upon my name. But if he doesn't want to, let him be unjust. Hey, he that's filthy can be clean. But if he chooses to reject it, let him be filthy. That's what the Bible says, ladies and gentlemen. 
So the sayings. Verse 17, look at it there with me. I call this the summons. You know, the Bible's full of invitations. Isn't it great to get an invitation? I, I looked in my mailbox the other day, and, and it said, to Katia and her family. And I opened it up, Brother Hutchins, and it was an invitation to Shelby's birthday. Shelby's having a little party for the girls. And I thought, it's a nice thing to get an invitation. You know, the last invitation of the Bible is in verse 17. And there's three invitations that go like this. Look at it. And the Spirit and the Bride, that's the Holy Spirit and the church, say, come. You know, yesterday I had the privilege to give the gospel at Mr. Butler's memorial service. And I said, the title of my message, Brother Brooks, was Heaven, Don't Miss It. And you know what I said? All you got to do is come. All you got to do is come. The Spirit, the Holy, you know what the Holy Spirit says? Be saved. If you're lost, the Holy Spirit says, trust Christ. Trust Christ. You know what the church says? Trust Christ. Trust Christ. He says, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And then it says, and let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is a thirst come. You're thirsty. Jesus has the water of life to quench your thirst. You're hearing what I'm saying right now? Come. Uh, every, every service, Lord willing, we have an invitation at our church. I had two precious ladies yesterday thank me for giving an invitation at the funeral service. And I, I told them, I told them, I said, well, we always do. We always do. This is God's last invitation. And I love the way it ends in verse 17. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. You know what? If you want to be saved, you can be. Because all you have to be is a whosoever. Now, my Reformed friends don't care very much for that. But I don't care very much for a lot of things they believe. The Bible says, whosoever will, let him come. Whoever wants to. I heard somebody put it best. They, they were talking about election and whosoever will. And they said, I think the best way of putting it is this. On the front gate of heaven, imagine a gate that swung. And on the front it says, whosoever will. And you get inside of heaven city, Brother Jeff, and you look on the back of the gate and it says elect. Amen. Whosoever will, let him come. So the, the summons. But then, in verses 18 and 19, I call this the siren or the warning. You know, every first Saturday of the month, you'll be out. We were out passing out flyers out there in, uh, what do they call that, Birdland over there by the ice cream shop. And uh, we are out there passing out flyers, and all of a sudden, you know, they found us, amen? <laughs> no, I, then I realized, oh, it's the first Saturday of the month. That siren goes off. It's a warning siren. This is God's last warning in His Word. Look at verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things... God 
shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part. This is no joke, ladies and gentlemen. This is no joke. God shall take away out of his, his part out of the book of life. That means he is not going to heaven. Because only those whose names are written in the book of life are going to heaven. And out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. That is one serious siren going off right there. And then in verse 20, I call that the sureness. Say, what's the sureness? He which testifieth of these things saith, surely I come quickly. You know what it said? Jesus said, I am going to return. And it's going to be like that. I love what John said, even so, come Lord Jesus. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, every time I look around at this world, I think, even so, come Lord Jesus. Please, please. Not, not just get us out of here. But that is part of it, for sure. And then, there's the Selah in verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You see that word Selah a lot in the Psalms. It means this. Stop, pause, and think. Meditate. Meditate on all that you've just read. God's final warning in the Word of God is about the Word of God. In particular, I believe the proper interpretation is it is about revelation. Because it specifically mentions the plagues that are written and we know, of course, in Revelation, you have the, the different judgments, the vile judgments, the bull jumpers, the, the, the trumpet judgments. But I believe you can make an application, ladies and gentlemen. Not only the interpretation is of Revelation, but I believe you can make an application to those who would mess with the Word of God. And so... In the time that we have left, and we're right on time, I'm just going to throw these four points at you today. And that the thought, the application is simple. Don't mess with the Word of God. Don't mess with it. Number one today, I want us to look at the perfection of God's Word. The perfection of God's Word. I had somebody yesterday call me a heretic. Because I believe that the book that you and I hold in our hands is perfect. Called me a heretic for believing that. I don't, the truth is, I don't care. There are, I know this, there are wonderful churches that do not use the King James Bible. They use a different version. They love the Lord. They love God. But that doesn't change what I believe about this book. Not at all. And by the way, I don't, I don't need them to believe what I believe. They're in their local church. We're in our local church. Amen. But our Constitution and bylaws specifically stipulate the King James Bible will be the only version that we use. And here's why. I believe that this book that we have 
is perfect. I, I believe that, that received text, I believe that Masoretic text, the, the Greek text, that, and then the, the Hebrew text, that the Bible simply says, as for God, His way is perfect. Psalm 18, verse 30. And I believe it's in, inerrant. I believe it's inerrant. Psalm chapter 12, verse number 6, talks about its inerrancy. It says this, it says, in Psalm 12, verse 6, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You know, inerrant means without error. I believe this, this book that you and I hold in our hands is without error. I believe it is not only inerrant, I believe in the perfection of God's Word, I believe it is inspired. And that is simply this. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, talks about how God's Word is inspired. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theops neustos. God breathed is the original word. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, 2 Timothy 3, 17 tells us. 2 Peter 1, 21 tells us how it happened. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Peter didn't just sit there and say, now what should I write? And Luke didn't sit there and say, you know, I ought to write something. The Holy Ghost told him what he wanted written. And by the way, that's how we can have a perfect book. It's inerrant. It's inspired. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe this book is infallible. It's actually, the, the possibility of error is not even there. Because God, yet the Bible says, as God, let God be true in every man a liar. And it is impossible for God to lie. The perfection of God's Word. But secondly, and I want to tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is what we call a fundamental of the faith. Without that, we don't have a Savior. But I want to tell you this. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ without the bodily resurrection of Christ is useless. Because if Christ doesn't rise from the dead, we have no hope. That's what he said. Paul said that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If there be no resurrection, our faith is vain, we're false witnesses, all that. You need them both. And I want to tell you this in regards to this book, not only the perfection, but also, number two, the preservation of God's Word. If you do not have the inspiration of God's Word, you have man's book. But if you do not have the promise of preservation, then eventually we won't have the Word anymore. Because there are no originals. There are no original Greeks. There are no original uh, Hebrew copies. What we have, ladies and gentlemen, is a copy of 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 a copy with God's promise that His Word would endure to all generations. And that's in Psalm 12:7. Psalm 12.6 says, the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 12.7, thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God promised. And I believe this King James Bible has that promise of preservation. I believe that. If, if somebody doesn't believe that, that's fine. That's, that's their business. 
fine. I, 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 I am not one, again, I think I already said it, but I am not one to say I know people that have been led to the Lord with an NIV or led to the Lord with a New American Standard and they truly trusted Christ. And I say amen. Amen. But as for me, I'm sticking with this old King James Bible. And so is our church. The preservation of God's Word. God has promised and is able to keep His Word from decay, from corruption, uh, from uh, destruction forever. He has promised to do that. Psalm chapter 119 is all about the Word of God. Verse number 89 says, Forever, O Lord. Thy word is settled in heaven. Verse number 152 says this, Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. Verse 160, Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. The perfection of God's word. The preservation of God's word. Let me talk to you, ladies and gentlemen, about the perversion of God's Word. Since He is revealed in Genesis chapter 3, Satan has made it his main business to corrupt the Word of God. The very first thing he did was to cast doubt on what God had said. The very first thing. And by the way, doesn't he do that all the time when we read our Bible? Don't, don't his fallen angels, his imps that bother us, is maybe you read a difficult passage and he says, see, see, that, that, that's, 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 that's. He said, yea, as God said, he shall not eat of every tree of the garden. God said the opposite. Of all the trees of the garden, I may freely eat. He was trying to cast doubt on God's word, and by the way, and God's goodness. Well, if God was really good, He'd let you eat of all the trees. I mean, look at, look at how beautiful that tree is right there. Certainly God would let you eat that one. The perversion of God's Word. And since Satan knows he can't destroy it, he twists it. That's what the word pervert means, to pervert. It means to twist. Just twist. Just twist just a little. And again, I don't want to... Stay too long in Jude, but Jude 4 tells us about people who twist the Bible. It says they creep in unawares, and you know what they do? They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. That means a license to sin. They say, oh, listen, God's already forgiven you. Just go ahead, have a blast. I mean, you only live once. I want to tell you something. The perversion of God's Word, Satan's been doing that a long time. By the way, he tried it with Jesus. Remember that? When Jesus battled him. By the way, Jesus didn't use his divine attributes. He used the Word of God, which is available to you and I to fight against the devil too. But remember what the devil did? The devil came to him after the... He used it the first time, and he said, uh, by the way, this is what he said, thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. By the way, that's why every word in this Bible is important. Every word. The old King James translators, thank God for those italicized words in your King James Bible. You know what that says? That says that was not in the original Greek or the original Hebrew. It's to make an English sentence work. You know what, that, you know what I call that? Honesty. 
I, I say, Brother Jeff, they took Revelation 22, 18, and 19 very seriously. And we're not to add to the Word of God. We're not to take away from it. The best way for the devil to pervert or corrupt the Word of God is at the beginning, at the manuscript stage. Brother Tom Sammons did, uh, he, he has a phenomenal ser- Sunday school series, 13 weeks on the King James Bible and why we use it and all the differences in the modern versions. And I tell you, I think anybody, if you, you just take a look at that, if you maybe had honest questions about modern versions, you look at that and you say, you know what, I think I'm going to stay right here. The perversion of God's Word. The preservation of God's Word. The perfection of God's Word. And lastly, in our text, the promise of God's Word. The promise of God's Word. Verse 18. By the way, it's amazing you see two groups in verses 18 and 19. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things. That's your cults, ladies and gentlemen. That's your Russellites. Say, who are the Russellites? Those are Jehovah's Witnesses. They add to the Word of God. Those are Mormons. It's not, yeah, by the way, they'll give you a King James Bible and the Book of Mormon. He says, if you add to this book, I will add the plagues of this book. I don't know about you, and Lord willing, in the fall, we're going to start a series on prophecy on Wednesday nights, but frightful things take place in the book of Revelation. Frightful plagues. I always think, Brother Hutchins, of that time where the Bible says that uh, the, the sun is going to scorch men with heat, and these men are literally going to catch fire, and they're going to gnaw their tongues for pain, and they're still not going to repent. He says, if you add to this book, bank on it. This stuff's going to happen to you. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen. I, that's the point where I say, whoa. Whoa. I remember early on, I never wrote in my Bible. Anybody else never write in your Bible? Anybody? Okay. And listen, this is, this is a good verse to look at. Say, look, I don't want to add. Now, again, I think it's adding to the text and all that. But I remember my first Bible. I wouldn't write anything, but Brother Merklinger, I had all these sticky notes. You know, little post-it notes. And all of a sudden, my Bible looked like I had dropped it in the bathtub. It was like this big, amen, with all these sticky notes. And I said, well, I don't think that's really what it means, but I'll tell you what, like this Bible right here that I preach from, there's no writing in it, just God's writing. Listen. See that back behind me on that graphic? Don't. Don't mess with the Bible. Don't mess with it. Read it, believe it, heed it. Yes, don't. Don't add to it. Don't add your opinion to what God says. But then, not only does he deal with the cults in verse 18, he deals with the liberals or the modernists in verse 19. When I say liberals, of course, I'm not talking about political, though they are most often the Siamese twin of the theological liberals. It says, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy... 
I don't know any genuine believer who would take away from the, the words of the Word of God. I remember I was talking to somebody recently when I did a series in Ephesians and we came to chapter 4. It's a great chapter. It's about doctrinal unity and it says, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, amen. And I remember reading about that and just doing some study, going through the commentaries, Brother Mike, and I remember that one, one writer said that that baptism was water baptism. And one writer said that's when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're baptized into the body of Christ. And I came to the stunning revelation, Brother Weiss, that one of them was wrong. You know why? Because it says there's one baptism. And I remember thinking about that and thinking we used to support a Bible translator in Tibet named Justin Levine. Remember the Levine family? He was, they were in Tibet for a long time, came back to the States. And I remember they were talking about, there was I think a group of about five of them, they were just, those guys are, forgive me, they're smart going through the, the biblical languages and trying to translate it into the Tibetan language, Nepali. And, and I remember thinking to myself, what do they do when they come to a spot like that, when it could be this word or that word? Because I'll tell you what you don't want to do. You don't want to add and you don't want to take away. And you know, the answer was they prayed. They prayed, they fasted, they asked God, we need to know what, what word it is. You and I don't have that problem, ladies and gentlemen. We have a completed Bible. The question is, do we believe it? Do we, do we believe it enough to read it every day? Do we believe it enough not only to read it, but to heed it? People say, hey, do you believe this is the Word of God? And most of us would say, amen. Do you obey it like you believe it's the Word of God? That's a little different, isn't it? By the way, that's the acid test as to whether we really believe this book or not. Anybody can say with their lips, yeah, sure, I believe that's the Word of God. But does your life say, this is God's holy Bible, holy book? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not looking for a new version, and if, if you want a new version, you want a new pastor. I mean that with all my heart. If there became a, a, a grassroots, grassroots swell in our church that said, we want to go with a different version, I would tenure my resignation. Now, there's nothing like that in our church. All I ever know, people say, you know what, we love this old book. But I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. There's a big difference between this book and other versions. Big difference. And I'm talking about just simply mathematics. On words, thousands of words missing, thousands of words difference. We're just, again, I'm not mad at anybody else, but I will tell you this. We ask our members to submit to our statement of doctrine, and that is we use the King James Bible here. If you don't want to, that's up to you. You don't have to join. It's fine. We ask our missionaries. I ask them pointed questions about translation. How would you translate the Bible? Would it be formal equivalency, word for word, based on the received text? Or would it be dynamic equivalency? That's thought for thought. That's how you get your NIV. Thought for thought. All these missing words, footnotes. No, we're sticking with this old book. 
Here's, here's, here's what I believe the Word of God says. Don't mess with the Bible. And I just choose to apply that to this one right here. Don't. Father, we love you. Thank you.